anyway, trumpets are an alarm of war, and they do portend a lot of trouble. And I think you all recognize that. And this is that time of year, and so I want to talk about it kind of preliminarily to the Feast of Trumpets coming. They picture the terrible events, the disasters, the attacks, the wars, the upsets that are just ahead in the world right now. These trials, brethren, are already beginning, and I think most of you realize that, and I hope you brethren around the world do as well. You probably do. Right here, we're having continuing drought, one of the worst droughts we've had here in the Carolinas for decades, and some of our plants and trees may never recover from the drought that's already happened and is projected to go on another several days. In fact, we don't know of any definite end to it yet in the weather report. So it's already beginning. We're having continuing drought, and in other parts of the nation, we're having alternating floods and fires. The drought there is causing fires, dozens, in fact, hundreds of fires at one time have been blazing all over the North American continent. Right now, as you know, they've just released this Osama bin Laden video, and of course, he is threatening indirectly Americans, saying the Muslims need to continue to attack us. And 9-11 is coming up next Tuesday. We hear that the static, they said there's a lot of stuff on the Internet, other things like that they called static just before 9-11, six years ago. And there's more static than usual now. They say that they're planning a whole series of attacks. They might attack in New York, Washington, Charlotte, Atlanta, Los Angeles, four or five cities all at once. That's what they'd like to do. Perhaps they won't do that. I'm not saying they will. I'm just saying we're living in a very dangerous time, and we need to recognize that those things are just ahead. Things like that are happening. So troubles for the people of the descendants of the lost ten tribes of Israel are certainly mounting. And they are involved the weather. They involve the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other smaller wars all over the world. Continuing and growing resentment against the United States, cursing our nation, burning our flag saying down with America, down with the great Satan, as you know, all over, and certainly in many parts of the Middle East and Africa and even Central America and elsewhere. Disease epidemics, the scientists tell us, are almost certain to come and are on the way, and certainly the fall of the dollar is already beginning to take place. In fact, yesterday the dollar fell more than it had been in some time, and those things are occurring. They are going to be part of the whole process that God has are bringing our nation down unless we really repent, unless we individually and nationally have a depth of repentance that modern America has never had. And I don't think that's going to happen. It could happen. We're trying to get out on the television and some of our programs like Mr. Partied and Mr. Hernandez and others on the radio. If we had a lot more money, we'd put someone else on the radio. We'd have television and radio and the Internet and everything else. So that may happen before the end. We're going to try to reach this nation and help them to understand. But brethren, we all need, and here's my point today, we all need to walk with God with faith and patience. And you're going to need patience because it's going to be a long haul. At the beginning of the Second World War, when Sir Winston Churchill was drafted, a lot of people didn't like him. In fact, they hated his guts. They regarded him as a warmonger. He was too strict. He was too this and that, as you know. He'd been in what they called the wilderness years for a long time, all during the 1930s, having no great office at all. But suddenly he was made the prime minister when they knew they had to have a man who would do something. 
And it said, I come before you today to the House of Commons, and I have nothing to offer except blood, toil, tears, and sweat. And we have to realize that that kind of thing is ahead of us. And the war lasted on about five more years. It wasn't over real quick. It lasted and lasted and lasted until, as you know, August 1945. And the war in Europe was over earlier, but the British still stayed with us in Southeast Asia until that war was over. And that war would not have been over as quickly either except for the dropping of the atomic bomb. And so it hastened it to some extent. We all need to have patience and faith and walk with God with patience in the months and years ahead. We are going to be tried and tested, my brethren, as we have never been tried and tested. And we really need to understand that. It's a very, very real thing. Back in Leviticus 26, reading a scripture that you're familiar with, and I'll be coming back to this quite often, We've talked about this. In fact, this is one of the primary scriptures Mr. Herbert Armstrong used to use. He said the foundational, one of the foundational principles of prophecy. Mr. John O'Gwen put it on to a particular aspect of it, though, which has been very helpful to me and I think to all of us. In the first few verses, he says, If you keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary and walk in my statutes and commandments, I'll give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce. You'll get, have peace. Everything will be good. Verse 14, but if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise, get this, despise my statutes. And we need to go back and read God's statutes, perhaps more than we do, and see what they say. If you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments. And brethren, we do. When you read things in the news media, you hear stuff on television all the time. The world makes fun of it. Time after time, the various of the principles of God's statutes directly, and certainly even the commandments from time to time. He says, then, if you do this and do not perform my commandments, and this was given to us, it was given to our ancestors, and it's a dual prophecy, as so many other scriptures indicate, it's going to be effective today, and you break my commandments, I will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you. And as we know, that's the very first thing happened as a kind of an end-time beginning of the final events. Wasting disease, that's going to be on the horizon very quickly. And fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart, and you shall sow your seed in vain. We're going to plant crops, but what happens to them? Right now, a food shortage is impending, and some of the articles have said that. The food, actually, reservoir of our nation is lowest it's been in decades because we keep sending it overseas and they've had the drought in one area and floods in another. They've had terrible lack of rain and lack of uh, produce of wheat and other crops in Australia and Ukraine and other parts of the world that are normally good producing nations and also in Brazil and parts of South America. A number of articles have mentioned that. If I would take the time to read all the articles I have, uh, ask Monica about it. I, she keeps having to spend more time stuffing all my articles in the files. It would take too long to read all these articles. But that's what they're saying. They're not in our church. They're simply reporting on what is happening. Terror. And those who hate you shall reign over you. And that's already beginning to happen to many of our brethren to a certain extent in South Africa because they made mistakes there and now they're being put down in thousands and tens of thousands 
of the educated classes are leaving every year. I'm not exaggerating. Tens of thousands. They're getting out. They know what's ahead. After this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power. That's already beginning to happen. That part of it as well, as we know, America's power has never been so despised around the world in modern times as it is right now. I will make your heavens like iron, terrible drought, and your earth like bronze. Your strength shall be spent in vain. Your land shall not yield its produce. Drought in one area, floods in another. These things are increasing, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. And he goes on with other things in detail. If you despise my statutes, Almighty God said. You know, let's turn to one of God's statutes back here a few chapters. Turn back to chapter 18. Here's a whole list of God's statutes. He says in verse 5, Leviticus 18, verse 5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live by them. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness, anyone but his wife, his sister, his daughter-in-law, whoever. He gives it in detail. He was dealing with a carnal mind, a carnal nation. He didn't give them any excuse. He said, don't do this and don't do it that way. Don't do it. My statutes. Notice verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Oh, really? That's what the God of Israel said. And who was that God? Some harsh Old Testament God the Father? No, most of you know. This was Jesus Christ. This was the rock of Israel who emptied himself and became Jesus of Nazareth to die for our sins. It is an abomination, he says. And yet we read in this morning's paper, and I could read you, as most of you know, literally hundreds of clippings about how the mainstream churches, Presbyterians, Lutheran, Methodists, Episcopalian, are ordaining men and women as ministers or priests who are openly professing homosexuals. They don't make any bones about it. It's not a question about running them out of town or putting them out of the church. It's a question of ordaining them, these individuals. That's how much things have changed. Here on the very early, well, I should have marked the, the page it came from, but from this morning's paper, the Charlotte Observer, gay appellate judge quietly makes history. Charlotte lawyer John Arroway made history Friday. That was yesterday. Today, yesterday, we're here. No one mentioned what many of them knew, that Arrowwood had just become the first openly gay person in a statewide elective office, yet it goes on to show he was appointed. The other guy apparently died, and they stuck him in there. An openly gay man or homosexual. I don't call them gay. I try to avoid that term. I don't think that's right. There is one, quote, openly gay member of the General Assembly, Senator Julia, so it's a woman, a lesbian, Bozeman, a Democrat from Wilmington. Arrowwood is also a Democrat. The Republicans have been more the warmongers. They have their problems, but the Democrats tend to be more liberal on all these social issues of abortion, homosexuality, and you, you know the rest of it. Our governor... Governor Mike Easley's office said Friday that he doesn't know about Arrowwood's sexual orientation and doesn't care. He doesn't care. What would King David do? Go back and read it. He ran them out of the country. 
You read about the other men, uh, men who were kings of Israel, righteous kings later on, like Jehoshaphat and the other men who followed in David's footsteps. They often ran them out of the country, the perverted persons that caused them. They were literally run out of the country. And what do we do? We make them our judges to decide what is right and what is wrong in all kinds of cases. That's what we do. And our so-called land of the free and home of the brave, where we put in God we trust on our currency. God help us! We are going down and down and down, my brethren, more than many of you even like to realize or think about. It's not fun stuff. It's awful. And that's why these awful things are beginning to happen. It's not going to be funny. It's not going to be fun for us to see our neighbors suffer. And God is allowing some of us to go through this drought right now. And we need to realize this. This is affecting our nation, and it's going to affect us an awful lot more. This is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. God will not be mocked. Is this drought that we're experiencing right now the start of the final drought to bring our nation down? I don't know that. I'm not trying to say it is. There were terrible droughts sometimes back in the 1800s. There was the drought in the great Dust Bowl time of the 1930s. There was drought in the 1950s. And I was on the baptizing tours during that period of time. And we got used to it. And it didn't kill the nation. It didn't destroy the nation. But it was called the seven years of drought by the Reader's Digest. They had a major article calling it that. There have been droughts before. I'm aware of that. This may not be the final one, but it may be the beginning of an off and on continuing drought with very little. In other words, it's not going to be a 20-year or a 30-year recess. It may be a little better some years and a little worse, just like the dollar. Does the dollar go straight down like you drop a rock? No, it's kind of going down like this. But the general direction has been down for the last two or three years, and it's going to continue. It's going to continue. It's going to affect your life. What about the drought? Probably, I'm not saying dogmatically, probably the same thing. A little relief once in a while. They say, well, it's not too bad this year. But then on down and the water level dropping and things getting worse and the food supply getting worse all the time. God will not be mocked. Are we in the last decade of the existence of the United States of America and Great Britain as we know them? The last decade, I don't know that, and you don't know that, but it's very possible, very possible, I say, our nation as we know them. We need to think about it. God will not be mocked. So we have to understand this. We must walk with God more than ever during this coming time with patience and not get all upset why is that all happening right now? And why is God letting us go through these trials? Brethren, the only way you can have the mind of God and really understand these things is not just to hear my sermon, but to just start reading through the Bible regularly. And you read how this happened in Abraham's time, and then Isaac and Jacob and Joseph was tried and down and held down for 17 years of trial and test before he was finally put to the highest position in Egypt except for the Pharaoh himself. And so many other examples all the way through the Bible. You begin to grasp the mind of God if you just read this and saturate your mind with it. This is the way God thinks. This book is the revelation of the mind of the God who gives you and me life and breath. And so we need to understand that, prove that. 
You say, well, Mr. Meredith, these books are out saying we can't be, you can't trust the Bible. I know that. I've read several of them, or parts of them at least. I'm aware of that. I've also read the Bible, and I've seen how God's Word is true. I've been in God's work now, brethren, I can honestly say for 58 years. I wasn't converted for a few months till December of this year, 50, 58 years ago. But I came 58 years ago this week to Ambassador College and got to meet Mr. and Mrs. Armstrong right away. Not because I was good, but because the college was so small. <laughs> I came from a high school of 1,200 students. I came to college of 12. So we all knew Mr. Ar and Mrs. Armstrong very well, like a second father and second mother. And because, as I said, I've had this very close friendship with Richard David Armstrong, his elder son. I was in and out of their house and doing things and seeing what's going on and got better acquainted because of that and got to eat Armstrong's special. Mrs. Armstrong's mother died, as he explained in uh, his uh, autobiography, and so she was not, didn't have a mother to teach her how to cook and clean house and take care, so they, had a, they did eat out a lot. People used to wonder why they was eating out. Well, that was part of it. And at home they ate a lot of Armstrong's special, cornflakes. <laughs> cornflakes. <laughs> so, of course, after my first wife died, I ate a lot of Meredith's special, I guess. It was granola. I thought it was better. And my present wife has heard about that. And I fed Beck and Liz will remember. Beck and I would often, because I didn't like to cook and had a hard time and and until uh, I married my beautiful wife and cook now. And uh, I would have uh, cottage cheese and peaches. And cottage cheese gave me the, the uh, you know, protein and calcium and peaches were nice. It mixed the two together. So we had a lot of cottage cheese and peaches and cookies or graham crackers. We survived <laughs> until Cheryl came along. <laughs> we survived. But anyway, we didn't know what was happening. And I began to hear and understand and watch these things in prophecy and have been doing so for exactly 58 years. And frankly, I was reading a lot of world news even before that time, as I pointed out. I'm not exaggerating. I just was, because I was always interested in reading, and it was the Second World War, and you read about, you know, Patton's tanks are heading toward the Rhine. Boy, I thought that's great. I'd read about that stuff every day. It was exciting back then. There was no television, so you heard stuff on the radio and read it in the newspaper. And I was a reader, and I also heard... Edward R. Murrow and H. V. Calton Bourne and all these old announcers back at that time and when I'd get my mother would fuss at me to do something and I'd get frustrated as a teenager, I'd walk over three blocks to grandma's house and, and have and grandma knew I'd be sat in her living room listening to her radio or the news sometimes. And then I would hear the phone ring, and sometimes I'd I, I kind of listen. I knew what was happening. It was my mother calling. She'd say, is Roderick there? And I could hear grandmother, yes, he's here. He's okay. <laughs> I was listening to the news. I got upset and went over to grandma's, but I was hearing the news. I was a rebellious teenager, by the way. That's shocking to hear, but anyway, I was very human. But I've been hearing these things more directly for 58 years. We need to walk with God with patience and faith, because we're going to be put through trials and tests such as we have never been, collectively and individually. Turn, if you would, brethren, back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians at this point, and uh, I want to begin reading here in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll try to find this T down here. First Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, Paul writes, I do not want you to be aware 
that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Every one of them had to pass through the Red Sea, the cloud above, surrounded by the moisture below and around and above. And were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, they were sort of committing their lives into God's hand to go through the Red Sea. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, the rock of Israel, that great being. That rock was Christ. He was the God of Israel. He's the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. He's the one who gave the Ten Commandments. Speaking for God the Father, they were together. Now these, no, I'm sorry, then going on in verse 5, but with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. How many of them made it through of the men? Three. Moses and Joshua and... uh, Forgetting the other guy's name. Terrible. Anyway, there were three of them that did that. Now, these things became examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Brethren, these examples we read in the Old Testament, I'm going to read some in a moment, are examples to teach us lessons. And do not become idolaters. Some of us make idols out of our job, our money, our family, or our social position, or whatever it is. So don't have idols, as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, and they were certainly in a great sex orgy, obviously, drunkenness and sex. Now, nor let us commit immorality, as some of them did. In one day, 23,000 fell. That wasn't a small thing. That's the size of a small city. 23,000 people fell at one time. Some of the Bible critics try to say, well, it says a different number somewhere else. But the other scriptures that talk about so many falling, I forget where those are. I didn't try to look that up today. But if you put it together, they don't say when. 23,000 of them fell in one day. Do you understand? The Bible clarifies itself. There were more, but some of them fell on another day or two. But 23,000 in that one day, that's not a Bible contradiction. Just a little lesson there in studying the Bible. Nor let us tempt Christ. Christ? Yes, Christ was the rock of Israel. He was right there with them, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor murmurs, some of them murmured. Do we have murmurs among us? Dr. Meredith talks too much about prophecy, or I'm not getting paid enough, or Dr. Winnale talks too much about history, or Mr. Apartian Talks too much about the glories of France (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) We kid him about that. But anyway, you could pick at us. And they were picking at Moses and Aaron continually. So some of them murmured and were destroyed. That's what God thinks about murmurs who constantly murmur. If a person is doing God's work, is he going to be human? Yes. But if he is preaching the truth and doing the work, try to see the big picture. Try to look beyond the humanity and see the big picture and don't be a murmur. Now, all these things happened to them as examples. You see, these are lessons for us, brethren, and they were written for our admonition upon the ends upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And he's called it the end of the age back there. Some people criticize me because I'm saying we're at the very end of the age. Well, he was saying the end of the age is 2,000 years ago. What about that? Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
Well, I'm pretty good. I can't do anything wrong. No, I can do something wrong, and I do. You can do something wrong, and you do, every one of you, unless we have an angel unawares. In that case, I'm unawares of it at this point. <laughs> no temptation has overtaken you, brethren, he writes, except such as has, is as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape. Brethren, we're going to be tried and tested. Some of us are going to have to conserve water. Some of us are going to have to conserve food before it's all over. Some of us are going to lose our jobs. Some of us may be beaten up or thrown in jail. Some of us will be cursed. Some of us will be cut off by our families more than we may ever have been before. We're going to have all five kinds of things happen. Please understand that. We haven't had the kind of personal persecution, it seems to me, as the church, the living church of God, as much as we had during the early days of Mr. Armstrong's work. I've told you the examples, and I don't want to take time, but I personally experienced some of it. On the baptizing tours, we come up to this farm in Mississippi, and I think it was Burke McNair and I come up to the fence, and this little tiny guy came. He had the old sort of horn... Uh, not horn rim, but little little uh, gold rim spectacle, a small size. But he had a big gun. He said, "You guys here from Armstrong?" And he said, "Well, I said, well, I took." He said, "Well, we're here to just talk to your wife, and you're welcome." He says, "You get," and he said, "No, no." And he said, "You get, you get out, whatever." And I said, "Well, no, we we're glad to have you with us, and we're just going to talk and nothing." He said, "You get," and I talked some more, and then he cocked the trigger and pointed it right at me. He said, "You get." Did I bring fire down from heaven? I get. <laughs> we left, and we wrote her, and she later was baptized, I think, by uh, Mr. Westby, Ted Armstrong, no, uh, Mr. Uh, Ken Swisher, and uh, Mr. Ted Armstrong and I were on the tour in 55 in Louisiana, and we came up to the porch of this old shack, and, and uh, there in the bayous, and it really was a shack, and this guy had his overalls, straps, and hairy chest, no, no T-shirt. He really was a typical hick from the sticks. <laughs> Everyone in Louisiana is not that way. He was. We have Missouri hicks, too, by the way. <laughs> and we have North Carolina hicks, too. <laughs> but at any rate, he came out. And uh, we came up, and I think Ted Armstrong, well, we're, said we're from Ambassador College. Armstrong! That's the first thing out of that man's mouth. He grabbed a chair and started to hit us. And I've told you the story before. We grabbed the chair, danced around, and pretty soon he started throwing rocks. And, and uh, we yelled at his wife. I did several times, call Big Sandy. Information. Ken Swisher, he'll baptize you. Call Big Sandy. I yelled at her. She came and was crying and had her, her uh, towel there and everything ready for baptism. Later we found out, in fact, I called Ken myself, and uh, Ken uh, Swisher, and he uh, uh, he did baptize her. She got a bus up there and got herself baptized. But we had lots of things like that, more than one gun and more than one experience like that. I had a man up in uh, Tacoma, Washington. The desk clerk should never have done that, but called up at 2 or 3 in the morning, and I was just exhausted. We'd already been losing sleep for weeks, and I had this tooth was about to come out of my head. But I took the lead because Burke was younger, and... And he said, you've, you've done something to my wife and you've molested my wife or whatever term he used. And, uh, and I said, no, we've had 20 or 30 of us and we went out to this lake, a whole bunch of them. He shouldn't go in our car. and best, bad, Well, and he was drinking. He wasn't totally drunk, but he was drinking. 
And I went out to the house with him foolishly. I went down there. I shouldn't have done that. But he insisted I go out and see her when we got there. But that time he was starting to sober up and realize there's nothing happened. And before I left, he gave me a $20 bill. And back then, a $20 bill was like a $100 bill today. He felt very sheepish. But, you know, it turned out years later, out in uh, Mr. Ames would probably know the lady. I can't remember her. But out in Glendora, I met this young woman, a dark-haired woman, who was his daughter. My wife, well, she's, but she remembered that. And we talked to her and found out she was the daughter who is now, in, in wor worldwide at least, of the man that yelled at me and threatened me and he was going to do this and that to me up in Washington in the middle of the night. I wasn't afraid of him because I just went on out the house with him all alone. I didn't want to wake Burke up. In those days, I was younger and stronger. I said, if I can't outfight him, I can outrun him. <laughs> and uh, so, but whatever. We haven't had much of that today. People cursing and trying to hit us, and many tried, some men tried to hit me, even coming into church a few times in Chicago and places like that when their wife was in church and they weren't and things of that sort. So we haven't had those trials, but we're going to, brethren, and we need to understand it. So God says He will deliver us. He'll provide a way to escape that we may be able to bear it. He will always be with us. But we're going to go through trials. We really are. And as the end approaches, those things are going to get worse. So we need to understand God will be with us if we don't turn aside. Turn back to Exodus, if you would now. The book of Exodus. And let's go at this point to chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. As you know, I'd like to read all these verses, but there just isn't time. And verse 18, breaking into the thought, here's Pharaoh saying what was going to happen because the Israelites were not working hard enough and, and Moses and Aaron were trying to get them to go worship God and offer sacrifices. So he said, Therefore, go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you'll deliver your quota. They had to make the same amount of bricks. Boy, he put it on them. That was hard. And I'll tell you, it's hot there in Egypt. I've been there. It's very hot. And the officers of the children of Israel saw they were in trouble. And then they came out, as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said, this is like some of the elders of our church or some of you leading members meeting Mr. Ames and me or something. If you thought we were, you know, getting it too strict or telling you to do something you couldn't do. These were the people beginning to get upset. They said, let the Lord look on you and judge, because you made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh. You're getting us in trouble with the government. Talking about a coming government of God. You know, whatever will happen near the end. And they start to persecute God's people, because we're talking about the kingdom of God. And in the sight of His servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Well, of course, that hurt Moses very much, that his own leaders were turning on him. And so Moses returned to the eternal, probably fell down on his knees and lifted up his hands to God and said, Ever living one, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you've sent me? I don't need to be here. You call me. You made me do this, God. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. It's not working out. Christ's kingdom has not come. We've been here ten more years and it's not happened and we're being persecuted. We don't have enough food. Our neighbors don't like us anymore. We've had enough. We're going to leave the church and go back to Egypt. This is the attitude, you see. 
This was what they went through at that time. And yet this was the great God dealing with them. So the Eternal said to Moses, Now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and so on. And then he says here uh, a little bit later, as you go through the story, uh, in chapter 7, the Eternal said to Moses, See, I have set, made you as God to Pharaoh. I'm going to let you speak directly in my name. And Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. Moses seemed to be, not didn't want to do the preaching. He wanted his brother to do most of the talking. He was very humble, though. Moses was, sincerely. He was the most humble man on earth, it tells, as you know in the Bible. I think it's Numbers 18, verse 3. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall speak to Pharaoh, that he must send Israel out. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Is that going to cause him to act right away? Was it going to be over the next day? No. It lasted on for weeks and weeks. But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt, bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. I'm going to cause it to last for a while, and things are going to get very bad before they get better. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, is the Hebrew word, Y-H-V-H, or Y-W-H-V, it is different ways, six different ways it can be spelled. Don't think you have to do that, because you don't have to speak these names. In fact, it's kind of interesting, you said earlier here, you know, they have the sacred names people. I'm going to digress for a moment, but turn back to verse 3. Verse 3. God spoke to Moses, verse 2, said, I am Yahweh, the ever-living one. That word means the one with life inherent within himself. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Oh, a different name, El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. Does the true servant of God got to regard him as Yahweh? Well, the father of the faithful didn't. And here's a verse showing that. Abraham was the father and is the father of the faithful. He was not even known by that name to Abraham. Interesting. Now, we don't have to use those certain names, but it's interesting to know what they mean. That's the main point. But anyway, he talked to Moses here then, and he said, I'm going to bring Israel out, and they shall know that I am the ever-living one, verse 5, when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Moses was 83 years old. Or 80, excuse me, and Aaron, 83, when this was done. Of course, their age span was longer at that time. And so he showed what he was going to do. And he told Aaron to take his rod, throw it down, and became a snake. But the magicians of Egypt, verse 11, they did the same thing. God sometimes allows the devil to cause certain human beings to perform false miracles, or maybe they're real miracles, but used for a wrong purpose. It doesn't say it was a, a, a mirror, a smoke and mirrors thing. It was as a miracle, but used for a wrong purpose. So Mo, the Eternal said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard, and he refuses to let the people go. Verse 17, Thus says, By this you shall know that I am the Eternal. Behold, I will strike the waters in the river. And they'll be turned to blood. And so you see a little bit later here that he did do that. He struck the waters of the river. And in verse 20, all the waters that were in the river turned to blood. That was the first plague on Egypt. 
All the rivers. Interesting how that's in, because they used to worship those rivers. As you know, part of the Egyptian worship involved the rivers, frogs, lice, certain things like that. And God used those very symbols of their pagan religion against them as you read the commentaries. But then, verse 22, the Egyptians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, a series of miracles. And so people could got very discouraged, perhaps. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard. He still didn't let them go. And seven days passed, you see, another week. And the Eternal spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and said, Let my people go, but if you won't, I'll smite your territory with frogs. And, of course, the Pharaoh didn't. So, verse 6, Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. You think about this, it's awesome. It's a big country, I've been there. Not a tiny place like Rhode Island. Frogs covered the whole land, and they used to worship frogs. And that's a matter of history. God used their very idolatry against them. And the magicians did so. God allowed these false prophets to do some of the same things for a while with their enchantments. And they brought up frogs, so Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And so you go on, and then uh, he said in verse 16 to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand, rod and strike the dust of the earth so it may become lice. Boy, that's really awful. Lice everywhere. And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand and struck the dust, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout the land of Egypt. This was really painful and embarrassing and awful. Lice crawling over people all over. Now, the magicians worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they couldn't. The third time is the charm. There's an old saying like that. But in the Bible, you'll find that over and over again. You know, third, three more times. I won't go through it, but time after time you had three. And God often had three leading men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus' main disciples, his apostles serving him, James, Peter, and John. Or Peter, James, and John, it was at the beginning. And over and over you find that kind of pattern throughout the Bible. Seven is the number of perfection, and three was kind of a special number. And the third number is the charm after the first and second admonition. If a man is still causing trouble, division, put him out. The third time, you're out. You might warn him a couple times. Third. And so it's interesting. This happened this way. And so the magicians could not do that at this point. The third time, it showed God was there beyond what they could do. Then verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And brethren, I pray almost every day, and I sincerely hope you brethren here in this room and you brethren around the world will join me. Let's pray that God begins to intervene in His time and way that He knows us best and show by His actions that this is the hand of God. I know He will in time. But we have all these people who are all confused and they're not sure about God. They're not sure about the Bible. And a lot are all mixed up. They don't know where true religion is. And even in the churches of God, they don't know who's doing the work. They're as mixed up as they can be. I pray that God will begin to make a distinction. And if we do our part, that's the big, biggest two-letter word in the English language, if, if we do our part, God will do that. So they could not. The magicians finally admitted, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Eternal had said. And so the Eternal then said to Moses, rise early, 
and say, let my people go, otherwise swarms of flies are going to come. So the indication is, brethren, as you'll see from the following verses, the first three plagues fell on whom? On all the Egyptians and all the Israelites. They had to scratch an itch. They had to go dig for water here and there and couldn't dip water out of the waters, out of the rivers that were dried up. They had to suffer. And you and I are probably going to have to suffer some of the effects of the drought as it gets worse and worse and certain lack of food and certain things from forest fires and range fires and wildfires and earthquakes and disease epidemics and you name it. But at a certain point, God will not tempt us beyond what we're able. He promises, I just read you that, 1 Corinthians 10:13. He will intervene. He is our Father. But it humbles us. Why does God let us suffer part of it? Because it humbles us. It's good for us, frankly. We're, we're, we're fat and sassy in this land. What's one of the greatest plagues we have in the United States of America? High blood pressure, heart trouble, diabetes. And most of it is caused by overeating and people who are way overweight. My wife and I weigh up in... Uh, the mountains of Tennessee over here, not to pick on you, brethren, in Tennessee, but we hadn't seen so many big people for quite a while. It's just amazing how they were just massive individuals walking along. And some of the women were three and 400 pounds. I'm not exaggerating. Women. Massive. God is going to humble our people and humble His church too along with it to help us understand. It humbles us. It helps focus our minds on God it helps us have more compassion than later on when these things happen to some of our worldly neighbors or relatives where we say, ha ha, look, they're getting it. Nothing ever happens to us. No, some of it is going to happen to us. Some of it is going to happen to humble us and to teach us lessons even in God's church. It'll help us get over our little hurts, our little backstabbing and politicking that sometimes takes place in headquarters church here and in other churches around the world. Over in one of the churches in the southern Midwest, I've talked about it. Uh, the brethren there kid me about it. I won't name which one for those of you who don't, but they had the, the coffee pot wars, and I think I told you that years ago. Human nature. The women decided they needed a new coffee pot, and they were going to come next week and take a collection or talk about it. Instead of this, one woman literally paid her own money and brought it. Instead of being happy, the other, what would you do that for? They didn't want her to get credit. Now, maybe she did it to get credit. Maybe she just did it to serve. I don't know. I wasn't there. But it's interesting. God is smiling in a sense up in heaven. But in another sense, he's wagging. He said, oh, my, my own brethren down here, my own begotten sons and daughters have coffee pot wars. The end of the world is coming. And we're concerned about who brings the coffee pot. We're concerned about who's the head deacon or the assistant deacon or the associate deacon or the vice president of the club or whatever it is. We get jealous if someone else is ordained a deacon or whatever ahead of us. We have these little wars. And God looks down from heaven and He thinks and He understands. As one of the leading ministers said years ago, I'll give him credit. I didn't think of it that way, but he said, Rod, he said, anything we have in this life, anything, and he and I were both evangelists, he said it's so small compared to what we're going to have in the world tomorrow is not even worth talking about. It really is. It really is. I've seen evangelists come and go. I've seen the vice president of this and the vice president of that all through this work come and go. Most of them fell away, as I've told you, and worldwide. 
It doesn't make any difference to God if you get in office for a while. He allows it to happen. Sometimes He guides it. Sometimes He puts a man there as a test. Will the man have the office and be humble and faithful? Or will he misuse the office? Or will he use it as a training ground to help him do better? Is his main motive to serve or exalt himself? It's a test sometimes to get an office. So let's understand that. God is testing us. He's testing you and He's testing me, yes, all of us, for a few years. And all the years of our lives are a few years, just like a vapor, a little wisp of smoke that comes out of the chimney. A little tiny breeze comes and it's gone. It's gone. That's our life. So we have to be humble and we have to be patient and we have to wait on God. And so we have to understand this. Down in verse 22, and that day he said in this next plague that he was going to perform, he says, I'm going to send swarms of flies on you, verse 21. And in verse 22, now Israel was to be separated. Now he was to show who were his people. And he says, in that day, the fourth plague, the first three came on Egypt and on Israel too. But the fourth one was the separation. In that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were, remember, and which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the ever-living one in the midst of the land, and I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. God will do something like that along the line as He protects us and delivers us and yet allows some of us to go through the early trials and tests of the coming drought, famine, disease epidemics, earthquakes, all kinds of things. And we have to understand and try to learn and try to make it drive us, cause these events to drive us to our knees. Not to make us give up and quit, but to drive us to our knees and say, Oh God, we're your servants. We're trying to do our best and read these accounts that are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So we want to understand. Then you go on and you find that he did do that. And then and down in chapter 9, verse 5, when he'd been to make uh, verse 4, he began to punish the cattle and destroy them with pestilence. And he said, And the eternal will make a difference between the livestock of, Egypt, of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Then the eternal appointed a time, saying, Tomorrow the eternal will do this thing. So the eternal did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. Thousands and thousands of animals died, probably tens or hundreds of thousands of animals. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. So God showed who is God. And he then spoke to Pharaoh a little bit later in verse 16. He said, But indeed for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. God will show who is God. And we won't have Christopher Hitchens running around and saying God is not great. And we won't have these other people writing this stuff, Dawkins on the God delusion, and these other people. It, it will shut their mouths at a certain point. And as God begins to intervene powerfully, more people will begin to realize, and I pray they will, that this is beyond human strength, beyond normal things. 
this is not just global warming. Global warming doesn't cause earthquakes. Global warming is not going to cause a lot of these specific things to happen at all, even if there is, in fact, a persistent global warming, which many scientists doubt. There have been ebbs and flows of heat and cold many times, and many articles in the Wall Street Journal have brought that out. We don't want to make a religion of that either. That's not the excuse for what God is going to do. Specific things happening to specific people, and they will know this is the hand of God and will help them to wake up. So I hope and pray that we can all see that as it comes along. Brethren, we do need to be patient and faithful in the trying years ahead. We need to walk with God in Bible study, fervent prayer, meditation, and fasting with deep patience and deep humility and absolute faith to put our faith and trust in the God of the Bible and read these things and see how God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always delivered those who keep His laws, who walk with Him. He always will. There's no exception. So we must understand that and have faith in that. Turn back now to Second Thessalonians, if you would. Here we find some modern-day miracles that are going to occur. It's not that they might, brethren. They are these modern-day miracles. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> now, brethren, Paul writes, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, he's talking here about the second coming, and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken, don't be upset and disturbed and turned aside or troubled, neither by spirit, <clears throat> by some demon putting some odd idea in your brain, or by word, some false teaching, or by letter, as if from us. And I've checked that up in the Greek and commentaries, and that's what it says. In other words, it's obvious that false letters were going around. There may be later on people will put things up on the Internet claiming I wrote it, or Mr. Ames wrote it, or Dr. Winnell wrote it, or someone else. They could play all kinds of tricks Letters as if from us, if you follow it. Funny tricks people played back then. They can play a lot more today with modern communication devices. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the apostasy, the word falling away literally means apostasy, comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes him and exalts himself above all that is called God. He takes titles that belong only to God, or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This coming great false prophet is going to act like God in many, many ways. And I've seen about three of his predecessors. <laughs> I've told you about some of that, how they act like God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? He warned them in person in detail about certain things, perhaps what beyond what he tells us here. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time for the mystery of lawlessness. Yet the whole basis of God is the law of God. The way of God reveals God's character, tells us how to love God, how to love our neighbor, and how many clever, extremely clever, complicated arguments they have to do away with that somehow. Any way to get around obeying the Ten Commandments. The mystery of lawlessness was already beginning. Only he who now restrains will do so. It might have been Paul. 
We don't know. Some say it was the Holy Spirit. Well, why the Holy Spirit then and not a hundred years later? You know, all kinds of questions you can ask about each, each, each so-called person. But it may have been Paul himself. That's my opinion. But we don't know that. He who restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume. Here's the final one in that office, whom the Lord will consume. Christ will literally, as it says in Revelation 19, 19, the beast and the false prophet were taken and both together thrown alive into the lake of fire. That is going to happen. That's their end. He will consume with the breath of his uh, mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, not God. There are going to be satanic miracles with all power, signs, and lying wonders. There are going to be lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. The love of the truth. My brethren, do you really have the love of the truth? Some of you people, perhaps some younger people are here just because your parents are here. I understand that. That's not evil. It's good. But nevertheless, at some point in time, you need to prove it. You need to internalize it. Is this really the truth? As these things start to happen, it's not going to be fun to be part of the living church of God. You say, I could get out of here. You're going to have a lot easier time outside for a very short time, <laughs> maybe a few years. A few seconds as God counts time, and then it's going to go suddenly the other way. But it will seem easier at first for a short time if you want to be part of this world's society. So they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion. He's going to cause people to have these wrong teachings and powerful preachings along satanic lines and false miracles to deceive them, to upset them, that they should believe the lie, and that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, the truth, that's so important, but had pleasure and unrighteousness. So let's understand that, brethren. He says back here again in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one, this coming great false prophet, is going to be how? Mario mentioned a few years ago, he said it's going to be interesting if one of these days the Pope actually brings down fire right in the middle of St. Peter's Square. Can you imagine? Now, most of you have not been there. How many of you have been in St. Peter's Square in Rome? Go ahead, raise your hands. Okay, maybe a dozen of you. I've been there five or seven times. Yes, that makes me kind of pagan. <laughs> Dr. Winnell and my wife and I were there uh, a year ago last spring. And it's quite a place. You can pack about 400,000 people in there. If, if it's packed out. And you can imagine that man from his high balcony, you know, and of course he said at one point, he said, well, he spoke in German and Italian and French and Spanish and in English. And when he spoke in English, he says, because God, Christ has given the church the power to forgive sins, he said, I now forgive all of your sins. I thought, wow, my sins have been forgiven by this little guy standing up on this balcony. What does he know about sin? He doesn't even believe in the Bible. How can he forgive sin any more than Mickey Mouse or Bugs Bunny? And I'm not kidding. He has no authority to do anything like that. But he takes this authority acting like he's God. But I'll tell you, when I was there with Dick Armstrong in the square, the smaller square at the Summer Palace 
and Costo Gandolfo south of Rome in the Alban Hills where the Pope takes his, it's cooler up there in the hills, his summer vacation sometimes, we were packed out. And it was maybe, I don't know, five or seven hundred or a thousand, I suppose a thousand people so crowded. And we could literally smell the men and women next to us because then that soon after the war, the Europeans still didn't all have indoor baths or regular baths. And a lot of them literally stank. I'm not kidding. It was quite interesting, you know. And the peasant women were shaking and crying as their God started to appear. And their tears were coming down in their breast. And they were shaking and crying shaking with ecstasy. And when he appeared, the whole crowd just convulsed. And he began to say things, and they were shouting, Viva Papa, Viva Papa, Viva Papa, Viva Papa! And they began to cry and shake. And their God appeared, and it was like an explosion. And I had never experienced a thing like that in my life before or since. Their God had appeared on the balcony. You can't understand that. And if you've been a Catholic in Europe a very zealous Catholic. A different mindset is of those people. Even the American Catholics don't have that mindset. But some of the Italian and French and Spanish and Portuguese do. And when they get to worship that man and they hear that we think he is a false prophet, are they going to love us or are they going to want to kill us? Kill the body and save the soul. That's what they used to say in the Inquisition as they would torture people to death. I don't say that will happen to us, but certainly they're going to have that attitude. So we have to be ready. We have to understand. They did not receive the love of the truth, and most people do not really love the truth. They don't study the Bible in that way. Turn back, if you would, to Matthew chapter uh, 24, of course, the very famous Olivet Prophecy. He talks here about the coming wars, And then in verse 7, there will be famines, pestilences, disease epidemics, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then he describes the great tribulation, a time such as never been before, nor nor ever shall be. And unless those days, these days when the great tribulation begins to come and these final events begin to happen, were shortened, no flesh would be saved. All humans would be blasted off this planet. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then, at that time, and other scriptures indicate it's not just after that time or during the tribulation, after the true saints are off somewhere else, but then, if they've been watching and praying, but then, at that time, at the very end, then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ or there, don't believe it. For false Christs, notice, they'll claim to be Christ, false Christs, and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even the elect. God says that. God is going to allow quite a number of men, not just this one guy in Rome, but to perform signs and wonders. And so we have to understand, if a man performs a sign, does that mean he's of God? No. You know, back in Isaiah 8.20, if they said go to the wizards or something, you to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there's no light in them, God says. Many other scriptures warn you about that. So you've got to have your spiritual life grounded firmly in the truth. To receive a love of the truth and know the truth and study the truth. Have the truth permeating your mind then to go through these coming things. Yet there will be true miracles 
And we can be encouraged by that. And I sincerely feel, I may be wrong, but I'm quite sure I'm not wrong on this, that as we get closer to God and God drives us to our knees about these coming events, we will also have such things as are described here in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, it shows how they put forth these men with good reputation to be deacons and whom, verse 6, Acts 6, verse 6, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them to set them apart as deacons in God's church. They weren't set apart as evangelists or apostles, but deacons at that point. And the word of God spread, and the multitude of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. There were tens of thousands of people in and around Jerusalem who were converted, frankly, as you read all the Scriptures. And a great many of the priests, even the Jewish priests, were converted. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. This young man, everything indicates he was a relatively young man, just ordained as a deacon. And then you turn over a couple of chapters, and the other young man ordained, one of the other two, went down to Samaria. Chapter 8, verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, preached Christ to them. He didn't just preach the, about the kingdom of God. He preached also about Jesus Christ, by the way. It says so right here. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. Why? Because he had such a wonderful voice. It was handsome. No. Hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. God will give us that kind of power at the end. I'm quite sure to be, help show where he is working. If he allows Satan, every time in the Bible we find where Satan's ministers have a lot of power, you see where God's ministers also have power. Most of you know that. And so here's this man now used as an evangelist but ordained maybe just a few weeks or months earlier as a deacon, and he performed miracles for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out, and many were possessed and many were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy. Boy, that can be inspiring and encouraging. Yes, God is with us. Down in verse in verse 12, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, notice he did preach the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both parts of the message, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. So it was a very, very inspiring time. And they saw miracles and signs performed by these young servants of the great God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we get closer to the end... And as we're driven more to our knees and begin to get more faith and courage, God undoubtedly will give His faithful ones some of these gifts. Revelation 11. Let's turn there now, if you would, brethren. Revelation 11. Most of you know this is talking at the very end here about the two witnesses. And it talks about measuring the court of the temple. God is going to cause the temple mount to be measured and certain uh, uh, altars, something be put up there, we know. And he says in verse 3, I will give power to my two witnesses, two men. They're not God. They're not angels. They die. Two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days. These are the two olive trees. They're referred to back in Zechariah, as you know. And the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to hurt them, notice fire proceeds from their mouth. 
God is going to perform miracles through His true servants and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. They are God's servants to help show, yes, God is still there right in the midst of this coming tribulation and in the midst of the time when it looks like God's people are down and out or they've, been, they've disappeared. But God will show His power in that way. Then it describes how these men are killed. They're killed. They lie three and a half days, as you know, verse 11. And then the breath of life entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Yes, they're resurrected from the dead. Awesome. In the same hour, verse 13, there was a great earthquake. A tenth part of the city fell In the earthquake, 7,000 men were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was passed. The third woe is coming. There are three woes again, three many things. Then, verse 15, the seventh angel, the last trump, and we're coming to that in a few days, sounded. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Brethren, as Mr. Herbert Armstrong said a number of times, in the end, we win. We're going to go through all kinds of trials and tests and upsets. It's not going to be always fun. It's not going to be easy. And you have to have faith. You have to have patience, humility, courage, Walk with God. Feed on this book. But if you do that, you can make it. And you will make it. Turn back to Hebrews, if you would now. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35. Hebrews 10. And let's begin at this point in verse 35. He says, Therefore, and he's talking to some of the old timers in the headquarters area around Jerusalem, as you know in Hebrews. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Brethren, we can't even begin to imagine the reward that we're going to have in a few years. If we're faithful and God tests us and tests us and He sees where we stand, He's going to reward us immeasurably. I mean, I I think it would almost make us shake in a sense or maybe cry. And and, uh, if we could just understand the glory that we're going to have and the opportunities we're going to have to fellowship with and walk with Christ and God and the spirits of just men made perfect throughout all eternity to know these people, to interact with them, and to maybe populate even other planets of the glorified spirit body. Because God has said, you have made it. You are now my full sons. I have tried you. I have tested you. I have worked with you. I have found you humble. I have found you faithful. And you will now enter my family forever. For you have need of endurance. You have to endure. You have to have patience. So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while. We think it's a long way where we're going through trials and tests. But from God's point of view, it's not very long at all. For yet a little while. And he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Christ will be here on this earth. Now the just shall live by faith. We've got to have humility. We've got to have patience, not give up and quit at the first hint of trouble. Patience. And we've got to have faith. The just shall live by faith. 
But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God does not want quitters. God wants people who are faithful, who put their faith and trust in him and hang in there to the end. Jesus said, he that endures to the end shall be saved. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe, who have faith to the saving of the soul. So let us learn the lessons through these things. Let's really study and drink into the Bible and feed on this book and know that this is a revelation of the mind of God. As we see how God did His servants in time past, He had allowed people to even have false miracles. He let people go through trials and tests for years. He let Israel go through the first three plagues, and after that He made a separation. But it hurt them, those first three plagues. They weren't fun stuff. But we can have faith and trust in God because we have understanding of His mind, of His plan, of His will. And with all of our hearts, we want it so bad we can taste it. We want to be in His family and be part of His kingdom, His very family, and bear His name forever.